0: Amen. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Pastor Mano. I'm so encouraged and thankful that you're here. Let's go to Revelation chapter two, as we continue through uh, the book of Revelation. <clears throat> these seven churches and these letters represented that we are about to read through, like the nations or the nation of Israel, rather in the Great Exodus, are a people called to patiently endure suffering and temptation as God finishes His work this side of eternity and brings them to the place, the new heavens and the new earth. They are on a journey. Refuge 2 as well is called to patiently endure suffering and temptation for the glory of God. Both. In our scattered places, the places where we live and we work and we recreate and such, but also in our gathered places like here and one day future 1500 Huffman Avenue. And the question that we should be asking as we work through these books is which church will we be like? What church most represents us? What descriptions fit us as we think about chapters 2 and 3. To these seven churches and to us, Jesus writes these letters. And what I want to do this morning is kind of give you a sampling of three parts to these seven letters. We'll work through those three parts, and then over the next number of weeks up leading up to Advent, we will work through each letter to each church. But Each letter to each church follows a very similar structure that's important for us to pick up here at the beginning. Hence, the kind of overview of the seven letters before we get into the seven letters explicitly. So I want to give you these. We'll be in chapter 2, and then I'll give you uh, an example from chapter 3. But beginning with chapter 2 and verse 1, let me read this to you to the angel of the church in Ephesus write and this is Jesus telling John the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands this kind of language is similar in all seven passages or all seven letters then another sample in chapter 2 verse 13 I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans and then chapter 3 and verse 5 the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life I will confess his name before my father and before his angels so I just give you a kind of a sampling there of the seven letters so let's let's pray father as we kind of overview these letters to your churches father may we uh, have hearts that are softened towards your gospel father that is something that only you can do in us Father, we can think upon things and we can kind of turn our mind in different directions but father our hearts uh, have to be changed by you They have to be softened by You. And Father, so please help us to know Your Word, but also help it to sink deep into our hearts. And Father, for Your glory and for our good, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I believe what we have in front of us with these seven letters is is actually a letter to the church of all ages. These letters are meant to be a collection of That applies to the church of all time. There are letters in many ways meant to preserve the church through the ages. In a sense these letters are kind of like this meta narrative. Kind of overarching ever reaching application and direction. And kind of life giving message to God's church and preserving it. From the beginning all the way through the end. The instructions in these letters, I believe, is the primary means by which Jesus will keep, protect, care for, and preserve the lampstands that he holds in his hands. So let me begin with this question. If you were to write such a letter what would it say? If you were to write a letter to the church aimed at preserving the church through all the ages, what would it say? Let me ask you maybe a more specific question, like kind of narrow it down a little bit. If you were to write a letter to refuge for that purpose, what would it say? What would be on the needs list? for refuge. Refuge needs this. Would it be a list of people maybe with differing views on secondary issues that you wish would change? Is that what needs to happen? Would it be a list of preferences aimed at persevering or preserving your own comfort or delights? Would it be a building closer to your home? Or maybe in a nicer neighborhood? Or with less work? Would it be less beards and skinny jeans and flannels? Or more of them? Listen, the things you grumble about are probably the things that would make it onto that list. What would be in that letter? And then let me ask this follow-up question to this. Would the answer on your letter, with the, the content of your letter, would it answer and help refuge patiently endure suffering and temptation for the glory of God? Would your letter and its contents do that? Would your answer lead the hearts of the people around you, in front of you, beside you, to endure great suffering and deep temptations for the glory of God? Jesus' letter to the church does indeed just that jesus's answer i believe represented across these seven letters to what is the greatest need for his church it's simply this to treasure jesus and his good news it is simply that at its core now that means a lot, and we'll talk about that today. That's very encompassing, but at its core, the church's greatest need is to treasure Jesus and His good news. We're to look at kind of thirteen through fifteen here, the, those verses in chapter two, very quickly. And I know we probably in this church sound like a clanging gong, like like. When are you going to move on from this treasuring Jesus thing? When are you going to stop saying that, come up with a different phrase or whatever? Listen, when you're treasuring Jesus 24-7 without any interruptions, then we will move on to another phrase, okay? That won't be till we see his face. Then we will be treasuring Jesus 24-7 and enjoying his presence. Until then... We will keep saying it verbally and reminding ourselves every day. But what does that mean? What does that mean? We say treasure Jesus all the time. And in summary, Jesus is telling the seven churches and the church of all time to do the same. But is it just an emotion, an an affection? Is it just... A knowledge thing is it just an action item on this long list what what is it? And, it and how is it represented across these seven letters i want to give you very briefly four things that i think that treasuring christ and his gospel means for us and all heads went down with their pencil pins i just saw it Vroom, there we go sorry i can't see your smiles anyways <clears throat> four things know it love it guard it live it let me say it again know it love it guard it Live it, know it, love it, guard it, live it. It's Jesus' concern in the middle of all of these letters. Know it, love it, guard it, live it. That's so what it means to treasure Jesus listen, you can't love it if you don't know it. And the more you know it, the more you will love it. Then you must protect it our hearts and minds are prone to wander and the world is surely pressing against it. And then if you know it and you love it, it will change the way you live. Each day, all seven letters, again, have this section right in the middle, the exhortation section, if you will, that touches on knowing, loving, guarding, and living to some aspect across these seven letters. The first, know it. Doctrine. Mental understanding knowledge you'll see in one of the churches where they're 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 like they're good they, they got the knowledge part it's it's the loving part they, they don't have but they're commended for the knowledge part but in this particular passage in 13 through 50 see this phrase you hold fast my name you did not deny my faith even in the days of antipas like so there's this knowing this holding fast to this knowing They know Him. So the question for us is, do we know the Gospel? That Jesus, do you know the Gospel? Like personally, individually, do you know the Gospel? That Jesus, the treasure of heaven, the one who died to pay for the sins of His people, and then adopt them into His holy family by giving them His righteousness. Do you know the Gospel? Are you knowing the Gospel? is maybe a more accurate way to say it. Are you knowing the gospel? Are you growing in knowing the gospel? How about this? Do you know the richness of the gospel? Meaning like has it moved beyond a gospel for a ticket to heaven and become the richness and the delight of your life that Jesus would lay His life down for you? That it's things like that it sets you free from idolatrous pursuits that will only crush you and others do you know how to the richness of that gospel so not just know it though love it passion zeal the way he's going to talk about this in these in these letters your first love and your only love your supreme love in verse 14 of this of chapter 2 But I have a few things against you," Jesus says. "You have some there who hold the teaching of however you pronounce it, Balaam, Balaam, Balaam. There we go. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality? And we'll get more into that later." But what you have is you have these people who who know it, but yet in the midst of these people, there are people who do not love the treasure, Jesus, namely, and his gospel supremely. And so they have taken up then false teachings. See, listen, you can both, you can know both the real gospel and false gospels. But if the real gospel is the supreme love, then there will be no room for the false gospel. It will be weeded out. It will not be submitted to. Do you love and have passion, zeal for? Now understand that you and I, we cannot make this love, this affections happen, but we can surely fan the flame and beg God for the grace to change it. So let me ask you this question. Your love... For Christ and the Gospel is it still flaming? what's that flame look like? Is it flickering? Is it strong? Has it floated to the love of something else in general and both as you walk throughout the day, can you see where that that love is aimed at this and uh, hope in this versus Hope in Christ. And then it goes back to that. And then back to Christ. Where does, where does it land most often? So know it. Love it. Guard it. We must protect the gospel. It's part of what's happening again across these churches. That the gospel is not being guarded among God's people. We must protect the gospel. Now, when we think about protecting the gospel in our day, we tend to think, In terms of protecting the gospel and how it's represented outside these walls. That's crucial and important. But where we tend to neglect, I think in our day and age, is we tend to neglect the guarding of the gospel in here. The guarding of the gospel in our own hearts, in our own minds. Someone once said, just as as a survey or an observation about generations, that... You will oftentimes in one generation love the gospel, the next generation that comes after them assumes the gospel, the third generation neglects the gospel, and the fourth one opposes the gospel, and then the cycle oftentimes repeats. Our, our proneness, our proclivity is not to, to just hold on to the gospel in purity, it's to move towards impurity, it's to let other things creep in. And take over in these churches. Listen, they're not, for the most part, denying outright the explicit mental components or intellectual components of the gospel. Namely, that Jesus took our punishment and we have gotten his righteousness. But whatever Balak was teaching, it was leading to idolatry and immorality. And as a result, they are denying that Jesus is enough for them. And that salvation, at least in part, is in another place. For them specifically, it was found in the likes of sexual sins. What they were saying, as one person I read this week said, if I can have this love substitute, then I will be good. I will be whole. I will be fine. I will be saved. Instead of, no, my treasure that is Jesus and His good news that's enough for me. Let me find this love substitute over here. So I want to give us today, very quickly here, some practical examples underneath Guard it of false teaching that leads to idolatry and immorality and try to apply that with a little bit of specificity for us. Particularly in a church, a place of three merged churches with merged traditions, preferences, leaderships, etc. we can fall into this trap that if my tradition or our preferences would be met then I would be good I would be whole. I would be satisfied. If my love substitute or my joy substitute or my Savior substitute would be in place, then I would be happy. You see, it's so easy for this false gospel of preferences to slip into God's church. What we do is we take those traditions, those preferences, and we elevate them to law. And when we do that, it becomes our functional salvation. If I could have this, I will be good. You've done this. Let me give you some some, some examples. You've done this when you can't be joyful without it. Or you've done or likely done this when you can't be joyful without it. Or you've done this when you can't be right with a brother or sister without it. Or when it's functionally more important to you than your church treasuring Jesus. Where does your mind go to? Where does it default when you leave this place? Where will it default to? Let me give you some examples. Again, this false gospel. If I could just have this preference, have this tradition, if it could just go my way, then I would be fine. Some examples. How about the way a particular pastor cares for you? Listen, some will be more direct. Some will labor long before saying something. Some will equip others to care. And some will try to be involved in doing it themselves. Now certainly there is wisdom and And such, and there is scriptural guidance for some of these things, but we have to be careful that that we don't elevate a preference to a law and then become displeased when people don't meet that. We're believing a false gospel. Another example the way a person or a culture worships. Some will sing loud, some will sing soft, some will raise their hands and dance. Some might keep them in their pocket. I usually do one of both, right? One in here and one up there. And then I just switch when that arm gets tired. (laughs) Listen, could a person's lack of engagement be because their heart is far from God? Absolutely. But could a person who's raising their hands and dancing, could their heart be far from God too? Yes. Yes. What's what's important, though, is that we don't we don't let these preferences of what this looks like become law and and start believing that if if it would just be this way, then then I could be whole and I could be satisfied. Maybe leadership styles: some give strict instructions, I probably land in that uh, phrase, try not to. Uh, Some won't give many at all, some will give assessments and some you'll have to ask for more feedback. Or how about a person's engagement in politics? How about that one? Kind of a sensitive issue right now. In politics, some are more sensitive to authority. Some are more sensitive to, be, to those being oppressed. And some will only see a particular way forward. And others will differ and say, well, maybe we have options here. Again, we have scripture that gets in and helps govern these ideas and such, but we have to make sure that where the scriptures have not been clear by implicit, uh, by implying or explicitly, that we don't elevate things to, to to law or to expectations that we hold over each other. Well, that person doesn't view politics quite the way I want them to, and so you know what? When I see them, my heart's going to be in angst. anybody ever experienced that? Like I just don't know if I want to talk to that person. You're doing exactly what I'm talking about, what the Scriptures are talking about here. You're you're believing a false gospel that could take root in your heart and in this place. Or how about the handling of COVID-19? No masks. Masks all the time. No exception. Again, Scriptures talk about governing authorities, loving your neighbor. I love how Sarah brought out that. The, the reality is some people live this way. So, th- th- think of it this way. In some ways, the fact that we have to live this way right now is a unique opportunity. If I could just build off of what Sarah said. Again, so, so impactful. <clears throat> we have a unique opportunity right now to relate to those people who have to live like this all the time. And that's where she said that phrase of it will, maybe it will spur compassion. Wow. Wow. Like we have this unique opportunity to live like they have to live all the time. And, and listen, like, even that's like, like too much of a phrase, because it's, it's like we don't have to. Some of them have to. But again, do we take these things and elevate them to law? Again, the Scriptures have much to say about all these items, but likely not to the extent that we oftentimes act like. Much of it's preferential and wisdom and traditions. So treat it like that. Not as a law. Or else you are likely believing a false gospel. We must fight to guard the gospel. Not our traditions. Not our preferences. So know it. Love it. Guard it. Live it. Live it. The reality is the more we know it, the more we love it, the more we'll guard it. And the more we will live it. Listen, the gospel changes the way we view life. I don't know if you know that or if you seek to apply that each and every day. It changes the way we understand difficult situations. It changes the way we view temptations, the way we counsel ourselves, the way we help other people. Here's what I mean by that. If you want to write down something, the gospel doesn't simply change our understanding of something as wrong or sinful or right But it changes the allurement of that temptation. So it doesn't just define what is right or wrong. It surely does that. But it changes the allurement of it. The enticement of it. The things that are right, it makes them more enticing. The things that are wrong, it makes them less. It changes the way we view temptations. Listen, the more we know and love the reality of Christ and us in Him, the less enticing the false gospels that lead to sin are to us. Listen, the more controlling a preference is to your heart, the less of a treasure Jesus is. And this passage, particularly, they have exchanged the joy of Christ for the fleeting pleasure of sexual immorality. They have said, His gospel is not enough for me right now. I must experience love this way. And this happens in other examples throughout these letters. And God calls them to obedience, to live it. You see, Jesus writes these seven letters to His church and He says, the greatest need of the church is to treasure Jesus and His gospel, to know it, love it, guard it, live it. But then how does Jesus seek to remedy this issue like how does he work with the churches how does he encourage the churches to know it live it or to know it love it guard it live it how does he engage them does he does jesus as we look through these seven letters does he like us we try to get at issues does he simply pull out the spiritual chisel or the spiritual sledgehammer for some of us Of justice and such and start going to town on each other and ourselves. Is that what Jesus does? You know, if I could just name the issue, then it will get fixed. If that person would just know what's wrong with them, then they could fix it. Or if I could just figure out what's wrong, if I could just get the chisel out and go at it. That it would be fixed. Or if that brother or sister could just see the wrong I see in their life. Then they would be more holy. Or if I could just fix the sin in my life. All my guilt would be gone. Give me the chisel. Listen, the church, church, it just, it doesn't work that way. And that's not the way our Savior does it either. Sure, there are moments for the chisel. Absolutely, as you will see in the midst of five of these letters. But what you find here is more than just a compliment sandwich on either side of the chisel. Yes, you see the rebuke, the admonition, the chisel, but this chisel is born out of something. It's, it comes from something. These, these standards, these expectations, this, this goal for us is born out of something. It's born out of ultimately the glory of God. The expectations, the credibility to the call, the reason for the expectation is because of the glory of God. His indescribable character in all of its holy weight, the risen Christ in all its splendor is the basis for the call to patiently endure suffering and temptation. You see, God's glory is the basis for our greatest need. This treasuring Christ in His gospel. God's glory is the basis for that. It's the foundation. It's the root. It's where it comes from. It's what drives it. We don't, we don't start with the chisel. We start with God's glory. How many times will you, when you sit down to, to work on self, which is a good thing, but you begin with the Chisel. Why not begin with God's glory? Why not begin there? God's glory is the root or the footing for our greatest need because God is most glorious and deserves the recognition. Treasure his son and his good news. You see, it's more than just, hey bro, hey sis. Let me give you a positive before I slam you with this negative. Instead, it's let me help you turn your eyes to the immense glory of the risen Jesus. Let's live there first. Let's dwell there, sis. Let's dwell there, brother. We'll get to the other stuff. We will. but Let's dwell there. First. And we just finished the opening drama, revealing the immense glory of the risen Jesus, where he's described as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the flaming, discerning eyes, the justice dispensing sword, the merciful hand upon John's shoulder. And now he tells John to write a different letter to seven different churches. And where he begins, every single letter is with the glory of God. Every letter he connects some aspect of what he's just described in this opening drama. And he takes a little piece of that glory and applies it to each church and begins each letter with the glory of God. Hey, church, I'm going to get to your failings and your struggles in a minute. But right now, let's behold my glory. Let's begin there. For example, as we read earlier, chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel in the church in Ephesus write, the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, we'll get into the details of why, but imagine just for a moment the glory of the risen Christ. That He's alive. I mean, can you think for, for John, like... Yes, he died, he saw him rose again, but now what's he see? The exalted Jesus. the exalted. He saw the risen Jesus, which was awesome in and of itself, right? And now he sees the exalted risen Jesus. Wow! Remember this is the revelation of the risen Jesus, not the revelation of events, maps, charts, or predictions. It's not the revelation of a bunch of do's and don'ts. Although it certainly has application, it's the revelation of Jesus as he is and as he is doing right now. It's a drama of his glory on display for us to behold. You also see the glory of his might and power in holding the lampstands. Like the mere glory represented in the fact that he holds the church. Of all ages in His hands. Because He's not holding a perfect, masterful community of wonderful, perfect people. He is holding a bunch of wretches. Who want to run. Who are prone to wander. Who struggle to believe. Who want false gospels when they should turn to Jesus instead. And He's holding all of them in His hand and walking among them. The immense weight of God's people, but the immense power it takes to direct and care for such a thing. He holds thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of broken, sinful, hurting, wandering people in his hands. Just ponder for a moment the glory of holding the lampstands. He's alive to hold them, and he holds them fast. O sinner, O sufferer, let us not begin with the chisel. Let us begin by turning our eyes to the glory of God or the glory of a merciful friend walking among them. How magnificent is it that it's not just a cold, impartial judge declaring justice upon the lampstands, although he would be very just and right to do so? This is right, this is wrong. But His justice in the midst stands to highlight His mercy. You see, God is not just a God of justice, but He's also a God of mercy. And you see God's justice all over this book, all over these letters to each of these churches. If you don't change, I'll remove your lampstand. But in the midst of these calls for justice, the glory of His mercy, that He is walking among His churches, is ever-present. Is ever-present. In the midst of our failings and our struggles, He walks amongst us. You think, if, if you're back to writing that letter to the church, would it include, hey church, Jesus is walking amongst us. Fix your eyes on that. Let me ask you this question. Are you tempted to believe that the Scriptures, and particularly these passages, are only or primarily about behavior and obedience? Are you tempted to walk away from the text going, well, what is it I need to do or say? You say, no, it's about Jesus, right? That's what we've been taught here. The Scripture is about Jesus. It's not just about a bunch of lists. Then listen, then then how come we, myself included, will spend much of the rest of today thinking about myself or others and our doings or lack thereof and not about Christ as He is in His glory right now? This isn't where Jesus starts. He doesn't start with the chisel. He starts with the beauty of Himself. He starts with a glory to behold. He starts with the greatest treasure. It would be most beneficial for yourself and for others if we would seek first to behold His glory than to seek first the spiritual chisel. This is in part how God preserves our patient endurance in the midst of suffering and temptation. He says, look, my glory makes a difference. The call upon your life comes from the glory of God. It is the basis, the justification for it. So he begins with the glory, and then he works through this repentance and these exhortations and calling them to faithfulness as we started with this morning. It's not, but it's not just Jesus saying, look at what I did, now live this way. He also says to them, look at what I promise for you. I did this, live faithfully, treasure the gospel, and look to what I promise you. Listen, hope in His incredible promises enable us to cling to Jesus, our treasure. Hope in His incredible promises enable us very practically to cling to Jesus, our treasure. Listen, if there is no hope for something better tomorrow, then why not get what you can today? I mean, that's functionally how most of us live. Like, there's there's not much left for me tomorrow, or not much left for me in three hours. I've got to entertain this delight right now, this potentially sinful delight right now. And that's the moment we slip from patient endurance into immorality and or despair. But when there is hope for something better promised for tomorrow, then I can cling to the gospel today. When in the midst of this struggle, if there is hope beyond the struggle, then I can take the next step. I can keep a hold. I want you to hear the mercy of God and the promises of God from the selection I chose for today. Chapter three, verse five. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Listen to these words. Listen, listen. And I will never blot His name out of the book of life. I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. Wow! Like, Jesus promises this. God promises... Certainly to remove the lampstand of those churches who don't persevere to the end and conquer. Yes, the threat of justice is a fine motivator for God's people. and We don't like to hear that because we want to be grace people and certainly we do. But the threat. Fear of having a lampstand removed by a good and gracious and just God can have an appropriate place in our lives. But I don't want you to miss in the midst of this, that there are promises of mercy. God promise God's promise of future grace for those who overcome temptation and affliction is ever present. God's promise of future grace for those who overcome temptation and affliction is present. Think about these rewards. Think about what he promises to his people. Clothed in these pure white garments, meaning they've been washed of their sin. Never blotting out the name, your name from the book of life. What a promise. You understand? That's a promise that only He can make and only He can keep. You and I can't put our names in there. We can't keep our names in there. He alone can make and keep. And then He says, "I will confess your name before the Father." Wow. There to be like He will own us. Before the Father. He would say this is, this is our child. This is, my so, this is my friend. He is welcome in our family. He's ours. I mean how amazing are those rewards. That our filthy sinful selves. Broken and distraught. Will one day be clothed in white garments. You know what? I can go through some darkness. If at the end of the tunnel is that promise. That our names will never be taken from the book of life. And we will be confessed and owned before the Father. You know what? I can say no to this temptation. If that's what's at the end of this denial. Again, that Jesus would look at the Father and say, I paid for his sins. I paid for her sins. He is your son. She is your daughter. These are my brothers, my sisters, my co-heirs. They are a part of our family. You know what? I can say no to this false gospel today if that's the promise that's been made to me. You know what, if that is the promise, then why wouldn't I run in repentance after I fall? And run back to God in repentance and faith. You see, we can patiently endure suffering and temptation by holding on to this treasure if these promises are true. Listen, Jesus believed the appropriate promises for Him. That my Father will exalt me. That I will overcome death. That I will, after bearing the wrath for their sins, that I will be welcomed home into my Father's presence. That He will not ultimately forsake me. And the thing that we must understand is why He begins with this exalted, risen savior walking among the lampstands is this these future promises for God's people is rooted in the risen Christ these promises for God's people is not rooted in our performance or our lack thereof it's rooted in the risen Christ the fact that he was righteous he took our sin and then he arose from the grave He secured the promises for God's people, for you, for me. When you can bank on the grace of tomorrow or the next second, then you and I can make the hard decision today. No to that temptation. Hope in the midst of despair future grace secured by the risen exalted jesus that's why he begins with the glory of such set your eyes upon his glory hold fast to the treasure and hope in these astonishing promises of reward and with that jesus will persevere preserve even the patient endurance of God's people in the midst of suffering and temptation. So I ask again, if you were to write a letter to the church, what would it say? If you were to write a letter to your own heart, what would it say? What would it say? I want to read to you a letter that someone wrote maybe a year ago that if you watch you can it's written from one member of our church to another member of our church and you can hear glory gospel and future hope it goes it goes like this the words for writing this note haven't come easy but the tears have they're not tears of sadness but thankfulness and joy For the good work our Lord is doing and will one day complete. In general, thank you for treasuring Christ and loving his bride. Thank you for modeling this so well. Personally, thank you for speaking gospel rich truths to my broken and wandering heart. Thank you for your hugs and words of encouragement. Thank you for your gentle reminders. Of the power of the spirit of God in me. It is a joy to labor alongside you. Love you. Jesus has written a letter to his church. He begins with his glory. Church, let dwell there and dwell there richly. And then our greatest need is to cling to the gospel, to the treasure of Jesus and His good news. To know it, to love it, to guard it, to live it. And we can make those hard decisions as God grants us the ability to place hope in the promise, the sure promises of reward that were secured not by our performance but by the performance of Jesus Himself. Let us persevere in Jesus name let me pray for us father God as we as we work through these difficult moments of life where we're faced with this temptation to sin or father we're faced in this moment of suffering that we didn't ask for or didn't sign up for Father, that in those moments that we would not pull out some spiritual chisel, but Father, that we would, by Your grace and Your mercy, look to Your glory. And as we behold Your glory, Father, may we lay hold of the promises that You have for Your people. Secured by Your righteous and just hand. Father, I pray that you would let these truths sink into our hearts, Father, for your glory and for our good and our joy and our delight in you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.